Welcome to the start of our Coaching Culture series. In this series, I'll be uh, conversing with HR directors and senior leaders about their experiences in creating a coaching culture. We'll explore what they did and why they did it, and ask them to share the lessons they learned and what, if anything, they would do differently in this new world of work. My guests today are Maureen Sumner-Smith and Mona Dyson-Barber. I worked with both of these fantastic people to build a coaching culture while they were in senior positions within the British Standards Institution, BSI. Maureen as the MD of EMEA Business and Mona as the HR Director. Both have now moved on from BSI, but they continue to hold senior roles. Maureen as a non-executive director and mentor to many companies, and Mona as the HRD at the Institution of Engineering and Technology, IET, where she and her team are just about to start the journey to create a coaching culture. So welcome both. It's a real honor to have you as my first guests in the Coaching Culture podcast series, and I'm excited to explore the lessons learned and top tips you can share with our listeners. Thank you, Trayton. Very happy to be here. Delighted to be joining you and Warner. Good to be working with Warner again. It's nice to have the three of us back together. It is. I, I guess what where we should start with the conversation is that simple question around what would we or how would we define a coaching culture? So Maureen, how would you define a coaching culture? Well, I think it's almost easier to say what isn't a coaching culture, which is one where it's there's very little um, ownership, accountability or empowerment. So people are being used to being told what to do as opposed to thinking. So that the opposite of that is where it's not the leadership team that are doing all the work and all the thinking and all the ideas are coming from them, but actually it's coming from within the business and that drives an energy in the business and a dynamism that um, is actually amazing to watch. Yeah. So I guess an environment where you've got empowerment and that empowerment enables people to think for themselves Absolutely. and connect and collaborate in, in different ways than if a coaching culture wasn't that. Yes, because you've got the benefit now of a team making a decision with, with different levels of experience and knowledge and um, and everything, as opposed to one or two people making decision who may be yeah. the most senior person, but not necessarily the most qualified on that task. So, yeah, yeah it's it's awesome. Great. Thank you. And Mona, your thoughts on what is a coaching culture? Uh, well, I think I'd echo all the points, really, that Maureen's raised. But I think for me, it's that an organisation really believes in um, the value creation that of every individual that works as part of that organization. And so it's one where um, culturally it's very front of mind around um, encouraging ideas, creating space for those ideas to flourish. I think it's about um, really um, focusing on, on the confidence level and encouraging confidence, mm -hmm. so developing individuals those individuals really um, flourishing in terms of their confidence as they figure out themselves that actually often the problems to be resolved, uh, you know, lie within them. So I think that's where it really starts to come to the fore. And I think as as Maureen's called out, it's when leaders step back and allow that to happen um, and create the space um, for that to happen that you really start to see, I think, as Maureen um, describes kind of that magic starting to to take place. 
Yeah. And one of the words I really love that you said then, Warner, is gives people the confidence because I'm, I'm not sure that's something that leaders think about. Um, not just the competence to be able to be coached, but also bringing up the confidence that they know the answer, that they are able to think and, and find the solution. And, and that, you know, over time builds up so that they have the confidence to to put forward different ideas into that space which leaders are giving them. So it, that's a secondary, certainly value that I notice in creating coaching cult cultures. Brilliant. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a huge important point, and I think you're absolutely right. It's the it's the uh, if to, to to take Maureen's words, magic. That really is the, the the moment where I think. I mean, I've I've sat in conversations with managers who sort of felt that sort of um, historic view that they have to know everything. Mm-hmm. You know, they are the font of all knowledge, and therefore that tends to translate in a tell approach. Whereas when uh, managers and leaders really understand how they can coach and have different conversations they they watch that confidence happen in front of their eyes and you know who who wants to keep being told what to do you know none of us on this call wants to constantly be told what to do we want we'll have that great experience where you have a go something successful you learn from that and you grow from that and that's really what happens yeah and i think it's giving people the freedom that space as we talk about and and the ability to have a different conversation which in its essence, coaching is is about having a different conversation where both parties are contributing to that space. So connecting and collaborating in a, in a way that creates innovation and, and creativity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the way I describe a coaching culture is I sort of I like to unpick the two words. So coaching for me is about the art of facilitating the learning, development and performance. And then culture is how we do things around here. So in simple terms, a coaching culture is having a different type of conversation that you mentioned that facilitates the learning development performance, not just for the individual, but for the team, the function, the global region, and hopefully for society as well. So thinking in that more macro as well, it's it's very powerful um, for me as having a, a coaching culture. So I can understand why in your old roles and new roles are looking to develop coaching cultures. So more, it leads nicely on to, as the sort of the head of EMEA within BSI at the time, you decided to initiate creating a coaching culture. So I'd love to understand what was behind your thinking and desire to create such an environment. Well, it actually first started when I was MD of the UK business before I became um, the MD of the uh, EMEA region. But I remember sitting there, I, I came into this role, my first P&L, big P&L role, and um, I'd had other P&Ls, but not so large. And um, I'd sit there in the management meetings and it just seemed like such hard work. I was surrounded by experts, you know, finance, HR, operations, marketing, sales, you know, everyone in their function. Um, and yet they all seemed to be looking and waiting for me to solve the issues or to drive mm-hmm. the business. And um, after one of the meetings, I think about three months in, um, Mona said to me, I said to Mona, this seems such hard work. And she said, yes, because they're all waiting for you, for the answers to come from you. Mm. Um, and that's when we sort of realized I suddenly had this view and changed it that actually it wasn't going to be about me. It's going to be about we as a team solve. So we had some interesting, Mona and I, I think we did a, a, a workshop on this, didn't we, Mona, to try and get people to to realize that that's it is it is our business it's not my business 
And it's not up to me to solve all the problems. It's up to everybody. And actually, the team were really, really open and welcome. But I think they were they come from previous experience where the boss did answer, well, come up with the answers. So yeah. um, we changed the culture. And, and it was interesting because I think it was about two years later, I, I sat there in the, the same meetings in the same room and I sat there and I hardly said a word in the whole meeting. The meetings mm. just went. Everyone was solving the issues and we used to get clients to come in to, to talk about the, the challenges that they were having with us. And I didn't have to say a word. It was just, it just was a dynamic um, atmosphere and and everyone took ownership. That was the big thing. Everyone took ownership to solving it. It wasn't about worrying. It was about what's best for the client and what's best for BSI. So everybody was contributing and owning Absolutely. what was contributed and I guess challenging and debating. And, and Trayton, that's exactly right. They were challenging each other. So you'd have finance challenging operations or you'd have operations challenging marketing or sales. So they yeah. were going out of their own comfort zones because they they felt that the culture was allowing them to give their opinions because they, you know, because we start in a function doesn't mean that's the only area we can operate in. You know, we are human beings with lots and lots of brains that can be used widely. So coaching kind of means you can actually allow people to broaden their own expertise, but actually their own opinions and their own, um, they can ask questions that mm. of each other in a safe environment. And it, it's, it was really awesome to see some, you know, someone in marketing challenging someone in operations. And, you know, the, in the past, it would have been, well, why have you opened your mouth in that, in that context of that oh. challenge? Yeah. And did, did it, you, you, you chose to start with the leadership team. Is, yes. Was that a, that yes. was a conscious decision. And can I understand the rationale behind that? Well, that was where I was starting. So I yeah. thought that, you know, it was that the place to start was to actually, um, so that was the beginning of changing this culture and bringing coaching in, to be honest. But obviously yeah. then we had to put in a lot more structure and a lot more formal processes and and really institutionalize um, that. Um, and that's where HR were just brilliant in terms of bringing yourself in, um, training people. And again, we originally, if you remember, Trayton, it was a leadership team that you tra you, you trained. You know, we, it was, yeah. it was, it was mm. that team that I'm talking about that you trained. And then gradually, um, we obviously widened that round um, round the business down sort of quite a few levels. Um, and I mean, more they can talk much more about that. But we really yeah. did sort of institutionalize. Um, this is the way we do things round here. It's not what you do; it's how you do it. It is what you do, but obviously, how you do it is as important. And we embedded that through the whole performance review process within the company. It was a real what and how. Um, and that was a big change because people could be, behavior could be shocking, but they were getting promoted because of the results. Mm -hmm. And and that was the that was a big aha moment, I think, for everybody, that actually it's it is what and how, because that's yeah. how you're going to be more successful. Yeah. So Mona, you were obviously part of that team and part of that. A journey mm -hmm. and I, I guess listening to Maureen you, you identified or Maureen came to you with that that challenge so from an HR perspective I'm I'm interested to understand the approach you took and how you work with Maureen and the team to, to develop it and to 
to widen the, the impact that it was having. Yes, and, and Maureen's right. She was working too hard. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, I'll reflect a little bit on just what Maureen has just said. I think one of the, the game changes, and this is a skill. I mean, this is some people are naturally better able to coach than others, but yeah. there are there is skill development in here. And one of them is really learning to be much more attentive. So paying attention to what's going on. And, and so actually we move from a team um, that, you know, people rocked up as individuals essentially and imparted whatever information and, and departed to a team that's much more aware, consciously aware, both in what was being said and what wasn't being said. And that's how you can create that mechanism for the sort of challenge that Maureen talked about. So, you know, and I reflect that back, as you say, having been uh, an integral member of that same team and kind of the the, the, the shift that happened. Um, in terms of the approach, so I guess you would probably expect me to have a view that it's led from the top. It, it makes it so much easier. I mean, it is authentic, you know. So this came from Maureen saying things need to be different and it simply wouldn't work if Maureen said, well, things need to be different, but I'm going to carry on operating in a particular way and that will be incompatible with what I'm asking you to be like. So yeah. um, it was a very much about calling out, well, what's the change that we need? How do we want people to show up differently? Um, and we, Our finance director at the time, as an example, was quite uncomfortable. This was not something that was natural in him in terms of showing up in sort of challenging or asking different questions and so on in the way that we were now kind of wanting people to, to be. Um, so there is that, in, the, the choice was, let's invest, let's do it in a structured way, but let's lead from the front. We're all in it together, as Maureen described, um, and really role model out to the wider organisation that we're serious because it's a clear signal that you're serious if your senior team take that time and invest that time to you know do their own development develop the skill set and then remain you know utterly committed to this is how things are going to be different different around here yeah so it's leading by example uh, leading by example. at the top yes. with this example here we had the benefit too that we had done an engagement survey and one yeah. of the classic questions in the engagement survey is do your leaders you know walk the talk and there was a gap and so, you know, there's, there was data there to be able to reflect back and say, this is what our teams are telling us, you yeah. know, that they don't have a sufficient voice. They don't feel we're walking the talk. We now need to do something to address that. So it was um, data that we could use for ourselves, but also to play back to the wider organisation of why we wanted to to change. And it's interesting you say about the employee engagement because a lot of other organisations we work with, that's a starting point. It's just to sort of say something isn't working, something needs to change. Um, and, and you talked about developing the skill set. In my mind, and I, I think something the two of you did extremely well, you know, working with the executive team and developing that wasn't just a skill set, but shifting mindsets that we needed to behave differently if we wanted a different outcome. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Maureen, you you were going to say something on top of that, I believe. I was I was going to say, actually, the other thing that's astonishing about this whole thing is the business was the most successful it had ever been. I mean, mm. we just we mm. just as we used to call it, we just blew the doors off the the budgets. You know, we were just um just 
growing. And this was not without any anything else happening externally in the market yet. There was later there were some changes with the standard which gave us opportunities. But this was actually just the same business had been running the same way. As I called it, it was a leaky bucket at that point because we were gaining clients and losing clients at the same time. And we had to sort of stop that. Um, and the business was just astonishing. We had one year, um, I'm always remembering this, um, where I'd actually been on one of BSI's leadership courses and the, the, the guy talked about the six-foot wall. And uh, we, we, were, we were doing very well in the UK at that time and the rest of the business wasn't doing so well. And I came back from one of our budget meetings, I think in the um, first two, three months of the year, and I said, we have got to just overperform this year in order to make the whole business be successful. We really have to, uh, we had all the conditions in place. This was probably year two, I think, Mona, of, of, of us doing this. And uh, the six-foot wall was, you know, you say, okay, so what more can we overachieve? So we had big whiteboards in our, in our boardroom. And uh, we kind of went, okay, let's say I'm going to make up the numbers, but let's say our budget was 100. Can we get to 110? And then can we get to 150? Can we get to 200? Can we get to the? So we we kind of went through this and we we set ourselves as probably about, let's say, 150. And then we started going through all the ideas of what we could get to, to get to 150. And we were soon getting at 300 because of the ideas that started flowing of what we could do differently in order to blow the doors off on on the PL. And do you know what we did we did it. It was just extreme because we actually then took about went about and this this was again me sitting there just facilitating the team happening. And that and they then went away and did it in their own teams as well. They did the same process of what more, what else could we do? What else could we do? Real sort of open coaching questions. Mm-hmm. And nobody, nobody as we went to that room had the idea how we were going to do this as in, in the other meeting. So that was a, a, a classic example of coaching, really. It was, you know, here's an idea. What more can we do? Yeah. And, and I think it's a brilliant uh, example of, of coaching, not just at an individual level, but a team level and an organizational level where you're setting the performance context and ambition and then getting people to contribute into that space that we spoke about with the confidence to do that with the you know their innovation and creativity to find solutions to to raise their game and that was the beginning of the real change in the organization because because of that we started doing things differently just because of that we started doing things differently we treated clients differently it was it was a transformation that that set about on us having to do better yeah, uh, fantastic. So at, at the moment, I guess I'm picking up three key learnings here. One, it is important, but not necessarily critical to have senior leadership buy-in, which we can come back and talk about. It, it's the other thing I'm picking up, and our listeners are probably are as well, that this isn't a sort of silver bullet. It doesn't happen necessarily overnight. I mean, we're talking about a year to t- two years to really get the the response to that. And then what I'm also picking up, it's really important alongside the coaching to have good leadership and a clear direction of the, the targets and the outcomes where you're trying to focus that behaviour and attitude, new attitude onto. Yeah, yeah. yeah great. Uh, and Trayton, I would say it isn't a silver bullet, but it is a game changer. Yeah. It's as close as it gets. You know, yeah. if you really want to lift and shift and change the organisation culture for the better, um, Coaching really enables you to to make some demonstrable progress with that. 
And we and saw, I... Lorna, how well people responded to it. So the leaders started doing it, the team started doing it. And, you know, then we brought you in, we brought in lots of coaching training. And now I know within BSI, even though I've left a few years, you know, there are loads of internal coaches that just didn't exist in the past, but there are yeah. hundreds of people that are now doing that for the organization themselves who, yeah. um, you know, will keep that dynamism going. And they probably need refreshing skills and stuff as we all do. But, you know, really they... Um, it is in now and embedded, this is the way we do things around here. And it brings out the best. I mean, instead of it being all in the head of one person, it's it's about the organisation operating in a dynamic way. And, and I think if it's just, you know, that was a couple of years back when we did this work and the world of work is certainly pre-COVID, the world yeah. of work has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and my view, and some listeners may not agree with this, I hope most do, but there needs to be a different approach. You know, we need to shift away from that command and control to a more connected and collaborative way of working, which in simple terms or is, is a coaching culture about creating that space and that confidence and that different mindset to um, come together and collaborate uh, effectively. So, Mona, I'm, I'm curious to, with that sort of initial phase, what, what were the next phases or actions that you and the HR team working with Maureen and the exec team took to really scale this up and and, and get the results that that Maureen's talking about? Yeah, so I think a number of things, because this doesn't happen sort of in isolation. So, Mm. you know, we looked, I think, as Maureen's touched on, well, how do we ensure that our approach to performance management has coaching as an integral part? Uh, We looked at defining what do we mean in terms of if like from a leadership charter, what are the expectations on on leaders and and calling out, you know, and this means in terms of how you coach and lead and lead your teams. Yeah. Um, we looked at uh, reward mechanisms. So again, it's it's absolutely true what Maureen says. We brought an equal balance on the what and the how. Um, and you know, frankly, if you're a manager, that affected what level of bonus you got or didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were um voracious really in uh calling out role models in, and and individuals and i think we probably had a terminology for them i can't remember what it is now but you know you were known if you were somebody who were living the values of the organization and showing the behaviors that we were wanting and you know and that meant that you were a great coach um so there was the, clearly the direct interventions we talked about so there's a cascade approach where we ran a program as you know Trayton which was designed at different levels so we had and I was fortunate to be um enabled uh, to do my ILM level seven with you because I was so I, I just saw what a change it made um, and actually, to me personally, how I sort of learned and developed, I wanted to keep going. And, I, and, and so we had individuals, if you like, to start that process of in-house expertise within the HR team going through their level seven and level five. Um, and then the program again for managers to so that there was structure. Um, so it's it's making sure that all of the inherent HR processes are aligned Um and that some of the kind of direct upskilling, um, equipping from specific skills that the training is there too. Um, and, and Warner, do you remember the the other thing, which was the most powerful thing we did 
within the UK, but also then when we were wider looking at EMEA, was we peered review. We had the, the talent mapping. So we'd look at um, who were regarded as, you know, in, in the quadrant type process of talent and succession planning. And you look at people who were regarded by their boss as being a high performer, um, and they'd be up in that sort of super box. Um, and then other people say, but actually, this is the impact they've had on other people because of the way they do things. So the how, the what was fantastic, the how wasn't. And there was some real tough conversations mm, as a leadership nice. team when someone's star is being criticized because of how they're treating other people and it's not the right behavior and stuff like that. So that was the first time we had that was very emotional. And yeah. tough, but then, again, that just became, and it was sort of people would go into the room um, I remember our German MD and actually asked for feedback before they expressed what they said about this person. So they were saying, what, what's the impact across the region? Um, you know, this is where I think the person is. But it wasn't, I'm not going to die in a ditch because you're moving them away from the where I think they should be. It was absolutely recognising that. Um, so that how really became the way we do things um, because it was calibrated right through to talent succession planning and your your reward and your performance ratings. Yeah. So what, what I'm hearing here, it wasn't just about developing skills at those different levels. And you're right, Maud, thank you for reminding me. We we put in different sort of skills levels that required for different roles within the within the team and, and the sort of functions. But it's also integrating it across systems and the architecture around how you did business and creating that behavior, supporting and facilitating that appropriate behavior uh, appropriately. Yeah, completely. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. Um, what are some of the key lessons, things that you, you know, that we did that you thought, oh, maybe we could have done this a bit differently, or now in hindsight, you'd think about doing something new or, or in a different way? What would some of those things be? I, I think a key lesson from my perspective is it does take time. Yeah. Um, like anything worth, worthwhile, it takes time. Um. I don't think that means I'd do anything differently as a result other yeah. than recognise it does take time. Um, and, you know, if I was to describe kind of the transformation journey, so to speak, you're right, it was it was two to three years, It, it you know, and, and you that's what you would need to expect. This isn't a quick fix, yeah. um, but culture takes time to change but that doesn't mean that you are waiting three years to see the results it's just you know if you're going to do it you need to know it's going to take a bit of time and be prepared for that yeah and i think be prepared in the sense of be prepared for the longer term and putting resources and effort and just creating it the sustainability mm -hmm. of it yes um, yes my experience of working with other clients is that they they just see the coaching as part of a skills intervention or actually when I talk to clients, it's about seeing coaching as a strategic intervention because it's going to change the culture. It's going to change yes. how you do things. And although the impact of that may take, you know, two to three years, those are strategic impacts, whether that's growing revenues, whether that's customer experience, employee engagement, those are long-term elements that will stay around uh, um, for a long time. Yes. Maureen, I think you were going to jump in with some thoughts. I, I, yeah, I think I was just going to say that, um, as Mona says, it takes time, but actually, um, and you have to stay at it. And actually, I think my lesson that I think we did very well, Mona, was 
we didn't let HR own it, to be honest. You know, they, yeah. they were absolutely brilliant at everything they did, thought about things, the detail, this whole way of calibrating. It was just awesome what, what we put in. Um, but by then, everybody could have seen the results. So there wasn't any pushback. Um, mm. And, you know, and if there was pushback, like this calibration of people's, you know, where they were on the talent box and things like that, succession planning, um, people understood it because of the process we'd gone through. So it's not, you can't introduce that thing right on day one. That no. comes once, you, once you're, once you're, actually, I can understand the difference between how and what now and how is important. So, um, and then people kind of really realize that their star performer might need some work still before, yeah. and they could be even better. You know, yeah. it's not, it, it, so it takes time and it has to be owned by the business with brilliant HR people alongside. And if I might build on that, Maureen, as well, I, I think from my own experience, it's not just about giving people the understanding about poaching what you're trying to achieve and where the benefits are, but it's for them to see the value of that different yes, way of working, yes. making life, if you like, easier for them yeah. Yeah. and enabling them to use those approaches in their day-to-day -day work rather than it's an add-on, it's an extra hour I've got to have a coaching conversation. It's not that at all. It's just having different conversations in different ways, which evokes and creates that innovation and creativity across the team, across the organization. Um, mm. So those for me are, are key elements for organizations to think about when putting in place a sustainable culture. Well, you're, get, you're getting the best out of everybody instead of it being yeah. one or two people. In any team, there's always one or two noisier people or high mm. performers who will dominate it. Whereas actually, as we all know, the introverts and the, you know, the deeper thinkers have got absolutely huge amount to contribute and usually can't get a word in edgeway in edgeway in um in some cultures and some meeting cultures. Mm. Trayton, just to build a little bit, I'd, I'd say the other thing is, um, of course, we've talked a lot about skills for people to coach, but it's actually one of the lessons is the readiness for people to be coached. Yeah. So yeah. I, we did pay attention to that a little bit, and I think it's a really important lesson that says um, there has to be a, a, a readiness I guess I can't yeah. think of the right word, a preparedness for people in the organisation to know that actually you are going to do things differently and you may discover that your manager is going to try some things and it's going to be a bit clunky and a bit wonky to start with, but this this is what we're trying to do. So you, you need to look at it at both ends yeah. and, and that, that and would be a really important point. And it's one of the key lessons I took away from working with the two of you on this project um, and actually, we did an audit of, if you remember, against the culture shift. And what that audit showed was that the people that were being coached, the coachees, um, were not ready, willing and able to be coached. So they were pushing back. So one of the things that would have created my learning from working with you on this project would have created even more, you know, increase in performance and acceleration of the changes would have been finding a way of, as you say, getting the coachees ready for that shift so that the whole organization was moving as quickly as it could together um so that was that for me was a really good takeaway and when you think about it it's crazy you know there are two parts with any coaching relationship the coach and the coachee it's you know you've heard me talk about it's a dance and you need mm -hmm. to make sure that everybody knows understands the dance why they're going to dance and enjoys the dance and knows how to have that dance so yeah i think it's a really good point Maura.
the other bit that I, I guess, came away a little bit frustrated that we didn't pick up on something. If I recall, at the same time as the coaching initiative, there was a customer first yeah. initiative happening. Yeah. And I, I, I use this phrase, it's not who's getting coached, but what's getting coached. And I guess I was when we went through, you know, together, that those two couldn't have been combined to say, OK, how do we have these types of conversations with our customers as well as our colleagues? Mm. I, I think that sort of merged over. But to make that more of a deliberate approach to say, how do we coach customers, you know, um, and how do we coach colleagues? And what, is there a difference and a similarity to help accelerate the collaboration that we can have with our customers and even our suppliers? Uh, to create, you know, more creative and innovative approaches that we provide. Well, we we kind of did that to a large extent. The way we created the client first program was not one or two people sitting in a room designing it. We actually, we actually, I made a call out in the town hall and said, "We're going to create this client first initiative. We need some people from around the business." Mm. And much to my astonishment, we had within twenty four hours sixty people in wow. all walks of life who said they wanted to get involved, which made it. It's made a challenge for the marketing director to try and convene them all, but um, and some of them dropped out. But we had a really broad voice across people who then wanted to create what this program was going to be, um, and we actually also worked with clients doing that as well, and ended up having our client voices into our town hall oh, every year nice. uh, coming and talking to us. So we kind of did that, and the clients were were given carte blanche to come and tell us, you know, where we could do better. Um, yep. They weren't, there was no, there was no prescription. It was, we want to hear from you. Um, we had them come into the executive meetings every, every month as well, which scared the bejeebies out of some of my teams because it was you know, quite often there was a few, a few challenges, but they were, uh, um, they were astonished. And in fact, when I had, I remember having a complaint and then asking the client to come into the exact meeting and talk about it. And actually, he later joined us as a company, this individual, because he was so impressed with how, and so many people say, why don't we do this in our business? This is such a good, so that that all comes from the coaching and the ideas. You, you widen it by starting something, asking people, and you get into astonishing areas that you would never yeah. have thought about. And that all came from not just one voice telling everyone what to do. It came from asking everybody around the business, these 60 people, around the country um, contributed to this. So it's you open things that are magic uh, afterwards. Yeah. I, that's yeah. what I can say. It's, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I think that magic comes from giving people the space to contribute to it. Yes. And to um, be thought that they're being listened to. Yeah. 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 And it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's like common sense. It's not commonly applied. And it just seems yeah. so obvious that we create yeah. space for people to contribute. And I yes. think most leaders think they do. But actually, mm. because they the, the default is a much more of a directive approach, they don't. Mm. Um, and it's certainly an experience we have with, you know, other clients that come on our programs. They go, I didn't realize the advice monster was so rampant within me. And I need to control that and give people the time and space and be present for them uh, to be able to contribute to that. So we, we've talked about the commercial benefits that, Maureen, that you saw going up, you know, that, that sort of wall and, and going using the numbers 100 to whatever that that was what were some of the other benefits Mona, from a people perspective and a sort of a sustainability perspective in the sense of 
sustaining a culture that can operate and make it a, an environment where people found greater levels of engagement, enjoyment in, in BSI. Mm. Well, I, I think you said it at the beginning. I mean, this is kind of common sense because this is how people really want to be led and managed. I mean, mm. as I said before, no one really wants to be have all the ideas sucked out of them, just told this is what you have to do and this is how you have to do it. That whole advice monster, however well-intentioned, that is the reality. It kind of completely disempowers people. Um, so I would say that, you know, you create this environment where, you know, suddenly people really feel that they genuinely have the space to think, you know, you, 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 you've recruited me for my brain. You've recruited me for something to, to come mm. in and have mm. a voice and contribute. So, you know, letting that happen is really important. I think there's kind of some intrinsic motivators here. You know, we know that people feel really motivated when they're clear about what they need to do and then kind of that clear purpose, when they feel that they're being developed and kind of, that's that confidence bit. And then they feel they're accountable for something. And I think you touched on it. You know, the world has changed. We've worked now, you know, a huge amount of trust came out of COVID. Everyone flipped to virtually. Everyone mm. had to get on and was trusted to get on and do their jobs and do their jobs well. And and the vast, vast, vast majority of people, that's exactly what they did. Um, and so we need to learn from that. And we need to know that actually letting go you know, stepping back, giving mm. people that space, that's how people want to work. Um, and I know we often reference different generations and Generation Z will say, I want authentic leadership, please. I want, I, you know, um, but I think everyone, that, that people thrive in that sort of environment. Yeah. That's a, that, Fundamentally, yeah. that's kind of what, what people value. So once you've done, you know, you've created that. And by the way, if you don't, the converse is people won't stick around, people won't join. Yeah. And people won't stick around. Um, and those that are sticking around are not contributing half as well as they might or should. Um, so they're not creating that value for the organisation. Um, so, you know, to say it's it's the common sense, it's the obvious kind of mecha mecha mechanics that you need to have in place to get the best out of your people is, is, is probably an understatement, really. Um, but, you know, so you are therefore creating that environment that people want to be part of. And if you wanted to be part of it, they want to stay and they want to contribute. And no one's going to stay in an organisation and commit, you know, for for decades. But you want to have people commit and do their best whilst they are, you know, working for you and then move on and do other great things for other organisations too. Yeah. So I guess there's two questions here. What are we going to gain from doing it? which there are lots of benefits. And the alternative to that is, what's the cost of not doing it in the longer term to our organisation? And I guess the sustainability of keeping people, not only keeping people, but also attracting great talent so they want to come and work within that that environment. Yeah. But, well, complete, but, but I think if you do imagine you have a workforce of X, you know, 10, 20, 100,000 people, everyone, every person can contribute and then com yeah. you know the, the net effect of all of that is huge for the organization so every every voice that gets diminished because we haven't created that right environment it's just a massive cost burden yeah you know yeah. and inefficiencies and which is the cost and, and all that stuff so in exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah maureen anything to build on that from from your perspective well i think um <laughs> A, a, a culture is a very is 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 a dynamic um, 
beast really and um what we saw was that we, we started doing by by good fortune for us we started doing employee engagement surveys um within in bsr around the same time and client satisfaction surveys and you could see it you could see it metrically our employee engagement surveys in the uk were really high um really high considering we were the biggest single business as well at that time um and what happens is people refer to other people that say, come and join this great organization. So actually mm-hmm. our recruitment, we ended up with a huge amount of internal referrals as opposed to having to pay agencies and use, you know, in fact, we stopped using agencies. We had a few of our own recruitment people and uh, and we had referral programs and people felt confident to, um, to bring people in. And likewise, as I said, we turned a complaint into a client, into employee. Wow. In, in one instance, because they thought they loved the culture, what they saw. So they kind of yeah. went, I want some of this as well. So, you know, it, it's um, it, it's a beast that keeps on giving if you keep feeding it. Yeah. You know, yeah. you have to keep feeding and you have to keep changing um, and don't get complacent because... Yeah. Um, you know, it 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 has to it has to keep evolving as 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 Mona said, the whole world has changed from the time where we, we were talking about here. Um and I, I was looking at a LinkedIn research that's saying that uh, more than half the members say the skill sets to do their own job today will be changed by sixty sixty five percent by twenty thirty. So, yeah. you know, they have to learn to do things differently um because what they know isn't going to be so valued. Yeah. what they do as opposed to you know what they know yeah there's some fascinating stats out there that are yeah. showing things are changing and you know i say yeah. to my clients don't become the boiling frog you know the water's yeah, getting getting hotter um i've got this vision now of a, a poaching as a beast maureen but a beautiful beast that can add real value just to clarify what we mean by the, the beast there it, it started it started in the room of 10 people in the uk yeah and then ex- escalated it, and, then it, and and then it you know went out to the thousand or something 1500 employees we had and then it went into the other businesses so you have to start somewhere and, and success breeds success and that's what we showed um going back to that meeting where it was all about uh, me hard work two years later i sat around and i remember I remember looking at Mauna, and I don't think I said anything virtually the whole meeting. It was that the meeting was just being run by the team, and they were just, just you know, it happened. It was just happening, and it was yeah, yeah. much more successfully than if it just come from my head. So yeah, um, yeah. and that's the beauty of, of the beast, as they say. Right. <laughs> so certainly, time is is getting the better of us. Um, but what I'd like to do, which I ask all my guests, is around our purpose, which is coaching for a better tomorrow. And because this is the Coaching Culture podcast, I want to link those questions into, you know, if we're going to coach for a better tomorrow, where does a coaching culture come into that that approach and any top other top tips that you can give our listeners? So, Maureen, if I go to you first and then Warren, I'll come to you afterwards. I mean... Everything we've talked about, and we're talking about what Morn and I were doing quite a few years ago, the world has changed, as we just said, much faster. And you yeah. can't have everybody in the same room all the time in meetings. It's not that. So you have to know that, you know, people are doing the right thing behind their closed doors, behind their meeting rooms. So, you know, you have to, and that's how a culture breeds. It's when when everybody knows how behavior should be. They don't have to be in a room. They don't have yeah, to be around, around people. That's where the culture um, changes because they're going to behave exactly the same way when they're sitting in their own offices, 
sitting in front of a Teams or a Zoom meeting as they would have done in that same room. So, and and that's where um, change happens because yeah, everyone nice. that's just the way we do things around here now. Why yeah. would we do anything else? It works, and, and people own it and feel they own it. And can see the benefits of that. Yeah, it it changes you as an individual. Yeah. I mean, I carried on then when I started looking after the European businesses after that. I then changed the way I managed and led those people who weren't behaving like that within their organizations. And they found our meetings very strange because it was a different way of managing it. And then gradually that goes through. So it's sort of, you know, like we took it into the rest of the Emir region. Yeah. Nice. And Mona, for you. So I, I think it's it's going to become even more relevant for the kind of future world um, because it's about relationships. So I know there's often, you know, lots of topics of discussions around AI and how that's going to further change the world of work. And But I like to think of it as, you know, yes, there will be uh, tasks that get done um, by AI, but relationships with people will become more important um so you know the the value creation by having great conversations um and that's where you can see coaching being ever so relevant and even more relevant um so yeah the world's a better place when we when we are able to have when we listen really well to each other we have great conversations so yeah great and i think you know who wouldn't want a better world and to use Use coaching to develop a better tomorrow, not just for us, but for society as well. So, Mona and Maureen, as ever, it's been a real pleasure. I've loved uh, our conversation. We could go on and talk more, um, but uh, thank you for giving our listeners insight and uh, all the lessons learned. So, thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you.